1: Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS Programme. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools is here every week at noon on Saturdays. And we're here to defend and to promote public education. And we're very specific about what we mean by public education. We mean education that's public in purpose and outcome. It's also publicly accessible to all children. That is really terribly important that if schools are paid for by the public then they are publicly accessible to their children if this is a democracy of citizens because the education of our citizens is very important indeed. And these schools or this education system should be owned and controlled by our elected representatives and our Minister of Education. As well as that, it should be the only one that is publicly funded because it's the only one that is publicly accountable. And our governments, if they were genuinely democratic governments, would make sure that we had the provision of an A1 education system. Now, we know that this is no longer the case. It has been the case in the past, but it is no longer the case because, unfortunately, there has been a very strange ideology taken over uh, the democracies of the Western world in the uh, decades since about the 1980s and it's called neoliberalism or if you like high Toryism or if you like uh, madness concerning the public good. Now, we have a website at www.adogs.info and this week we have a press release number 652. And this is it. Some people do appreciate our public schools and they wouldn't be where they were unless they had their public school education. And Wendy McCarthy, a prominent activist and a very prominent person in Australian life, has this to say. She treasures the opportunities provided by her public school education. She says, I often say to young people when I talk to them about education, it's one of the few gifts society can give you that no one can take away. I'll read it again because I think it's a very important statement. I often say to young people when I talk to them about education, It's one of the few gifts society can give you that no one can take away. Treasure it. Now, in the last week, Wendy McCarthy not only thanked her public schools and their teachers for the opportunities offered her, as you can see, she advised the young people to treasure those educational opportunities that still exist. Thanks to the battles fought by public school teachers and other public school supporters like the Dogs and Save Our Schools and others. In the Fairfax media, Wendy McCarthy told of her journey from a one-teacher school to her various positions as high school teacher, chairwoman of Headspace, that is the National Youth Mental Health Foundation, and of Circus Oz. She's also been the Deputy Chairwoman of the ABC and the Chancellor of the University of Canberra. And this is her story. She said, and it was reported in the Fairfax media, My father fought in the Second World War. He went into the army and when he came home, he got a soldier settlement block in a quite remote part of New South Wales, outside Forbes. I went to a one-teacher primary school of 25 or 26 kids. My family talked a lot. They were sociable and they had books. I was a voracious reader from the age of seven. Mostly I read and listened to the ABC radio. How did that equip me? I didn't have a chance, if you believe all the philosophy about how to be a big success in life. But in my year at Forbes High School, there were 14 kids. One became a physics gold medalist, and out of the 14, I think something like eight, ended up with university degrees. There was a civic sense in that town. The day Forbes High School became a full high school at the end of my third year, they had processions in the street, and when they got an Olympic swimming pool, it was a huge issue. No one in my family had ever gone to university, but education was celebrated. I knew I had to work for it, but it was also kind of normal to be educated. Now, in her final year, Wendy went to Tamworth High School and she said, Teachers asked me, would you like to go to university? And they said, we'll help you fill out the forms. My state school teachers fought for the children. They saw that as part of their duty to assist and enable I was offered a Commonwealth Scholarship and a Teachers College Scholarship and I ended up taking the teaching one and I knew in order to stay there I had to pass each year. I was 16 when I finished school and went to the University of New England in Armidale. I was there for four years and did an Arts degree and a Diploma of Education. So at the age of 20, I was teaching in the classroom with four years of university education behind me. It was fun and I loved it. I wouldn't have been able to go to university without a scholarship and I knew there was a social contract. I knew when I finished, I would be a teacher. I still have that sense of a social contract. I think I owe my society and community something for having invested in me. Sometimes we just forget these really basic things. I often say to young people when I talk to them about education, it's one of the few gifts society can give you that no one can ever take away. Now that was in the Financial Review But if you also go to the Sydney Morning Herald, and I think it may have reached the age, you'll find that um, she she was quite a a lady when it came to the feminist issues. She was a founding member of the Women's Electoral Lobby and there's a whole different story there. But I have uh, read you the uh, story about her schooling and there you have somebody who is prepared to thank her public school teachers. Now, the public school teachers in her day, and I must say my day too, because um, I'm of that generation, same generation as Wendy McCarthy. uh, In those days, the school teachers certainly fought for the clever kids and got them to university from the state high schools. And that's where so many of the current generation of our present public teachers come from, and they kept that tradition going. But it's easy to fight for the clever kids. They want to learn and they've got what you've got to give them. The really, really, really special teachers are the ones who also fight for the not-so-clever kids or the not-so-advantaged children. And there are plenty of those in our public school system. And they are in the public school system. They are very rarely in the private school system where in that private system you are a servant of the wealthy. In the public system, if you are a teacher, you are always the servant of the children. So, and also of the democratic society. Whose taxes pay you. So um, I, th- I thought you'd like to hear about that because it's not always and it's not often that people recognise how important our public schools and what they do and what they have done are in our society. They are the cornerstone of our democracy and we must keep them there. They are the most important institution in our society, I believe, and we need to fight for them. Now, we had a very interesting uh, email during the week uh, from somebody who had been listening to our podcast. And if you go to 3CR website, you can listen to our programs from the past on our podcast. But Dale is going to read out this letter from David.
0: Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got uh, an email here from uh, David Miller-Stinchcombe, and thanks for your email, David. Uh, In response to, uh, well, just some comments that we made on our podcast the other week, uh, Dear Dogs, I was listening to your informative podcast yesterday on 3CR. Just after 38 minutes into the recording, a throwaway comment was made about PISA. The comment, short though it was, implied that it's important for Australia to do well in PISA tests. There are two responses I have to this admittedly brief, unquestioning inference on the value of PISA rankings. Firstly, and least importantly, Pearson, the education publishers, are heavily involved in the development of PISA tests, as well as the development of NAPLAN, school textbooks and various state-level school leaving exams in Australia, such as VCE in Victoria. Given Pearson's heavy involvement in the curricula of Australia and the explicit aim of Australia to improve PISA, the whole thing looks like a circular argument. Pearson sells Australia the solution to improve at Pisa, at PISA while it's Pearson's data that is used to declare that Australia needs to improve at PISA which is then used as a motive to get Pearson involved with making changes to the curricula for which Pearson writes the tests to see if progress has been made such as NAPLAN which every few years PISA gets to declare is unsatisfactory as measured through a regime comp- Created by Pearson. Important though, though this is, for me, this is perhaps the least important point I have to make. Secondly, no one has ever explained to me why the children, school children of Australia need to be tested using the same regime as is used to test the school children of Singapore, Shanghai, the US, Finland, or anywhere else. No doubt some discussion of global citizens will be brought in to defend the comparison made, but I do not understand the meaning of this, and the notion seems to be used to undermine democracy, as I shall explain later. Our focus in education should be on meeting the needs of our society and our political discussions should be focused on what sort of society we wish to create and how we support schools. Would you read that again?
1: (laughs) I think that's a terrific statement.
0: Our focus in education should be on meeting the needs of our society and our political discussions should be focused on what sort of society we wish to create and how we support schools and parents in that struggle. Instead, we have a rather embarrassing and meaningless conversation about the differences between 15-year-olds from different societies and different cultures. The product of the education system is surely the society we live in. Using this as a measure of the education system, we do quite well when making international comparisons. Historically, Australia has punched well above its weight for technology, being the country that invented Wi-Fi is one small but significant example. I see no need to question the potential of Australians or the capacities of the Australian education system to help, forf- help students fulfil that potential when using international comparisons of our society and the achievements of our society. However, if we shift to a local political discourse about students with different needs from- and from different ethnicities, then I do not see PISA to help me critique the situation. I do not need PISA, sorry, to help me critique the situation. If the debate is only about how, how good such students are at maths or English at age 15, we do society a disservice. The debate should be about what place and future there is for all people present in our society, the autonomy that the individual and local community have in constructing these positions, and the resources we provide to the community, including the local school, to help the children and the wider community to fulfil their potential. When analysed in using terms, the individuals and the community have helped define. Using PISA to measure our children denies any such debate. This is the main problem I have with PISA. The commitment of a society should not be merely to the outcomes of students at age 15, but to the democratic processes needed to enable all citizens to lead meaningful lives for the whole length of their lives. One will find plenty of researchers willing to comment upon the validity of PISA and international comparisons tests using technical details. For me, these arguments are mostly irrelevant. Before I can decide whether or not PISA is a useful measure, is a useful measure, I need to know the goals of my society. If the goal of my society is to merely improve on PISA rankings, then we have given control of our society, and more specifically schooling, to an external body, denying us sovereignty that we should enjoy as a nation.
1: Well, look, thank you so much, David, for that very insightful comment on PISA. Uh, It did my heart good to read this email because I've been saying since... uh, since the 1960s certainly, that the idea that education actually had an objective and wasn't just process has gone out and has been politically unacceptable because it is so politically dangerous since the 1960s. Uh, in academia and elsewhere, all they seem to be interested in is talking about process, process, process. We well, can process wherever, but where are you going to end up? He's quite right. If we are going to produce a democratic society, uh, a society in which we have interesting, well-educated citizens who understand what a democracy is, who are enlightened, and who are questioning and who are looking after their children and looking after the disadvantaged in that, in that community, then we actually have to have objectives for our education system and just testing children and comparing them with other countries is just not good enough. It might be good enough for the Pearsons of this world who want to reduce education to the dollar that they can get out of it. And that is, of course, what is happening also around the world. But uh, that's another question. So thank you, David, for bringing us back to the basics in educational objectives. But, yeah, Now we'll have a bit of a break and we'll have a bit of music. Uh, for those of you who who are interested in Scottish uh, Scottish music here is Loch Lyman for you.
0: The federal government has signed on to the US-driven Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, but it's yet to be ratified. This so-called free trade agreement was drawn up by 600 of the world's biggest and richest corporations. It will have enormous powers to remove hard-won regulations and protection of local jobs and industries, affordable medicine, the environment, and our democratic rights. To find out more and get involved, come to a free public forum at 7pm on Thursday, the 21st of April at the Lower Melbourne Town Hall, corner of Swanston and Collins Street in the city, organised by the Trans-Pacific Partnership Unions and Community Roundtable, a 3CR supporter.
1: Had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by the school.
2: product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education.
3: Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world, and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world.
1: It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out.
2: Our education is not for profit. Our education is
0: not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the Defence of Government Schools on 3CR. Well,
1: that was Jenny Kelso and her harp uh, singing Loch Bloman and. Uh, There are also some other things that you need to know about. Now, I want to talk about what is happening overseas. And uh, I also want to refer you back to the 1960s again. Something happened in 1968 that I thought it would take another 50 years to happen. The teachers went on strike and they didn't go on strike for themselves and their pay or anything like that, although their, their conditions were pretty shocking. They went on strike in this country for the children. And because the state schools, particularly in New South Wales, but also down here in Victoria, had been allowed to deteriorate so badly. I know I was at one of the demonstrations and we put on hard hats because bricks had been falling off the walls of the Cogra High School. And uh, the Attorney-General Murphy came along. So that was or He was the shadow Attorney-General then, I think. Uh, He later became Justice Murphy. But he was the only politician that was really interested enough to turn up to that demonstration. But uh, the dogs were there. That was also when we started in the late 60s. But over in America, the teachers are out and about because they are in danger of losing their public school system, as we are here. It's later than you think, and it will be later than you think in Australia if Mr Turnbull gets back into power in July or later in the year uh and puts into uh practice uh the rest of the programme set out for him by the uh institute of public affairs. But uh, over in um, America Late last year, after news was leaked about a well-funded plan to convert half of all public schools in Los Angeles to charter schools within eight years, the education community balked. The intentions of the plan's architect, the Broad Foundation, were then put into stark relief. It wasn't a plan to use charter schools as innovation incubators as the late AFT President Albert Shanker and other early charter proponents envisaged them. Schools that would work side by side with neighbourhood public schools sharing successes and learning from setbacks. Nor was it about charters having a place in a robust and dynamic public education system, offering multiple pathways to meet individual students' needs. No, it was none of those. The Broad Plan and others like it were funded, was funded by groups such as the Walton Family Foundation and they are instead part of a coordinated national effort to decimate public schooling by rigging the system against neighbourhood public schools and the students they serve. Mm. And this is how it plays out. Politicians slash public education budgets... Well, that's happening in Australia. It's already happened. They remove the uh, local control. They implement flawed educational practices and then they sanction and shame the schools that have been put through this crucible with Pearson-style tests, pieces tests. Invariably, education reformers follow and they push charter schools as the solution. Privatisation, they say, is the solution to all of these problems that they've created themselves. With the predictable press releases highlighting long waiting lists as proof that parents want charters or private schools. But rather than solving the underlying challenges, excessive charter expansion undermines public school systems and traditional public schools already suffering from devastating budget cuts lose even more resources as students depart for the private schools, taking essential public funding with them. To make matters worse, many charter schools cherry-pick their students, leaving cash-strapped public schools with higher populations of students with special or high needs, further tipping the scales. Now, this is written about America and Los Angeles, but it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Now, despite the rhetoric of wealthy backers like hedge fund billionaire David Loeb, who just raised $35 million for the Success Academy Charter chain, the charter industry has a mixed record of student achievement and a reputation tainted by a string of scandals. Well, we've got private schools with a string of scandals in Australia, haven't we? Hardly a record that justifies the massive expansion. And a well-regarded Stanford University study found that charter school students were doing only slightly better in reading than students in traditional public schools, but at the same time doing slightly worse in maths. And at the same time, a report tallied more than 200 million in charter industry fraud, waste and mismanagement in just 15 states. So it's a money-making scheme, a bit like the Pearson tests scheme, uh, the money makers, there's a lot of money, some of it pretty bad money, wandering around the world wanting to make a quick buck out of insecure parents and their children. But in Chicago, a similar thing has been happening, and the teachers have had enough, and they went out on strike. And we have now a, an interview between Dale and Robert, Uh, reading from an interview that was done and which we got hold of in Chicago so Robert is the teacher and Dale is interviewing him and Robert really loved doing this because Robert at heart is very much the teacher. I have
0: an article here uh, entitled General Strike in Chicago in Support of Public School Teachers by John Foster. A Chicago teacher explains why she's willing to risk arrest in order to strike against the destruction of public schools. The Chicago Teachers Union is going on strike on Friday, but they aren't going alone. The union struck in 2012 claiming to fight not just for themselves but for a broad social justice agenda in defence of public schools and all public services. Incredibly, they were victorious over Mayor Rahm Emanuel and the Chicago Public Schools who wanted to further erode teachers' powers in the schools and institute more free-market-friendly reforms. At a time when the labour movement was in dire straits, the win was an inspiration to unionists around the country. But since then, the union has suffered defeat after defeat, 49 school closures, round after round of layoffs, budget cuts, teachers say have been devastating. And Illinois' new Republican governor, private equity mogul Bruce Rauner, has carried out a disastrous agenda of cuts and holding the state budget hostage unless legislators agree to major rollbacks of union rights. So when teachers' contracts expired this year and they were faced with more austerity demands, they again weighed striking. But this time, they've joined other unions and community groups in a call for a citywide general strike on April 1st, demanding not just a strong contract, but new progressive sources of revenue, taxing the city's financial district, for example, and ending the state's flat income tax to fund public goods and services throughout Chicago and Illinois. The CTU and the groups allied with them are looking to win not just a moral victory against austerity, but a tangible one. The strike will only last one day, but it's the kind of mass political strike that's rarely seen in, labor, in American Labor history. It also isn't one without risk. CPS has declared the strike illegal. This is an interview with one of the teachers who planned to go on strike. How did the union get to
3: this point? Well, we got to this point because the CPS, the Chicago Public School System, have been starving out schools for years. It's actually been a death by a thousand cuts. But recently it's felt more like, I don't know, chopping off our arms. We've been, over the years, more layoffs, class sizes increasing, cuts to counsellors and clinicians. Schools have been closed. Private schools and charter schools are opening up around the corner. It's making learning and working conditions very, very difficult in the schools. To give you an example, just this year, there's been so many cuts to our school, it's hard to keep track of them. At the beginning of the year, there were millions of dollars cut to special ed. Our students with disabilities weren't getting their services that were required by law. Parents and teachers and community groups had to go and fight the Board of Education with lawyers to get the services back. Then there were more special ed cuts in the middle of the year. Then, um, teachers started getting sacked. There were general layoffs. A month or two ago, there were even more cuts. The school I work in lost $100,000. Our budgets were already bare bones, and the principals had to cut even more. Then, just two weeks ago, we had another round of cuts. They froze all the funds. My school lost another $80,000. For my school, they've cut almost all the before and after school programs all the intervention programs for kids who are struggling and all types of clubs. Plus, uh, we don't really get substitute teachers anymore. We're not able to function with this low level of funding. And the board says we're going to make more cuts. But in the school right now, I can't imagine what else they could cut. We only have one nurse right now for two days a week to serve 1,200 students, 1,200 students. If a student is sick, maybe they vomited, maybe they got lice, maybe they're sent back to the classroom because there is no nurse for three days of the week. The majority of the school only have one counsellor. One counsellor for 1200 kids. Now we've gotten to this point because we have no funding. CPS, RAM and his appointed board of educators have been using the equivalent of a credit card to pay for everything. They kept taking out loans and loans and loans and our debt kept increasing and we go further into debt so the cuts keep coming. This is why we need progressive revenue solutions. We just can't keep cutting.
0: So um, what is at stake with this contract?
3: Well... They stopped paying our steps and lanes, which provided for pay increases based on time in the schools and degrees earned. Basically, if I've been teaching for a while and I go back to school and get my master's degree on my doctorate, I actually should get paid more, so I'm, I'm encouraged to do that. Legally, they have to continue paying them, because we're still under our old contract, which provides the steps and lanes pay increases. So they're breaking the contract which is why we're going on an unfair labour practice strike. Union leadership has indicated they are particularly concerned with the one-day strike is deemed legal or not, not even though the CPS has said it's illegal. As of now, CPS hasn't gone to court over it.
0: What do you think would happen if Mayor Emanuel did seek an injunction to try and compel an end to the strike?
3: Well, look, the district has always paid our steps and lanes since 1967. Now, our lawyer says this shows it's an unfair labour practice strike, but um, that lot have appointed members of the state labour board, so there's a chance they could rule against it. Look, I just don't see it happening before the strike, though. Look at what's happened in the past. For example, at my school, teachers boycotted the administration of standardized testing. Now, the Chicago uh, Schools Board said it's illegal and they said they were going to fire us and take away our teaching licenses, but none of us were disciplined at all. One school was united and they backed off disciplining us. They definitely won't be able to discipline 30,000 people.
0: During the um, last strike when Mayor Emanuel sought an injunction against the CTU in the second week of the strike, some people talked about the union committing mass acts of civil disobedience if they were ordered back to school. Do you think that would happen in this case if teachers were ordered back?
3: Yeah. yeah. Teachers came into the profession to improve students' lives. The majority of our students are low-income The teachers I know can't continue to see their students mistreated like this anymore. We can't continue to see our schools being stripped down. The consequence of not striking is far worse than the consequence of striking. If you want to see the consequences of not striking, look at cities like Detroit where they have skyrocketed skyrocketed class sizes and don't have proper cleaning services. Look at Look at New Orleans, which has no public schools left. These are the consequences of not fighting the privatisation and austerity agenda in public education.
0: The uh, 2012 strike was almost unanimously seen as a victory, but mostly because you won at a time when everyone else was losing. What will victory look like this time around?
3: Victory will be showing a united force. Not just teachers and parents and students, but actually creating a movement with other workers from around the city and the state. Fast food workers, bus and train drivers, professors at college around the city. are standing up for what's right will show our force and strengthen the union movement. A lot of these workers, who are participating in Friday's action, haven't gone on strike in decades, or maybe have never gone on strike. This could actually re-energise labour movement in Chicago and hopefully around the country. It will show that we're united in demanding progressive revenue. We're not going to stop until the rich are taxed more. We're calling for a millionaire's tax, a financial transactions tax, a tax increment financing surpluses to go back to schools, a progressive state income tax. The last one is particularly important because Illinois has a flat state income tax. Only nine states around the country have that flat income tax like we do. That is to say, poor people in Illinois should not be paying the same amount of money as the rich dudes. Um, And they wouldn't if we had a progressive income tax.
0: What have the conversations among members looked like about the potential illegality of this strike?
3: Well, we start off the conversation by saying that this is a ULP strike, There is, but there's a chance that the Labor Board could rule against us. That's one of the risks we just have to take. But if we stand together, not just with us, but with all these other unions and community organisations, we'll be safe. Besides, the consequences of not doing it are far worse. Mm.
0: This uh, is not the kind of thing unions do very often What do you think the rest of Labor should learn from what the CTU has done in Chicago?
3: Well, Labor needs to learn that they can't be collaborationists (laughs) They can't be collaborators They have to fight back against the bosses But also against the politicians that are hurting the workers The only way to do that is to show militant force and withhold our Labor A lot of unions have stopped using strikes as weapons. But striking is the most powerful weapon that we have. I think of our strike in 2012 starting to re-energise labour, and I hope that continues. But we can't just be service model-style unions. We have to actually energise every single union, every single workplace. So our members, the rank and the file, are the ones leading these actions.
0: The union has strongly embraced fights against racism in Chicago. CTU has referred to educational apartheid in the city, spoken out against the loss of teachers of colour, called the 49 school closings of 2013 racist, and the union recently called for the resignation of state's attorney, Anita Alvarez and Mayor Emanuel, in the wake of the Lacan-McDonald scandal. Can you talk about the importance of the issue of
3: racism to the union? The CTU has put systematic racism in our city at the forefront of our agenda. That's meant some of the difficult conversations with our members, but we can't deny it. We live in a city where nearly all the schools are being closed are being closed in black neighbourhoods. How can people say that that's not racism? The libraries and mental health clinics are being closed in black and Latino neighbourhoods. How can people say that that's not racism? So when the CTU spoke about police brutality, some of the members were upset. But we couldn't be silent that one of our own CPS students was shot 16 times by a police officer. Also, just, just like how we want a school board that's elected by the people, we also want a civilian police accountability council that would be elected by the people of Chicago who would oversee the evidence of any police shootings. If you look at the last primary election, it showed the power not only of the CTU, but also the power of black and young people's organisations like the Black Youth Project 100. We killed that election. We won eight of the nine races that we were endorsed in. It's especially important that we kick out this woman, Anita Alvarez, and anti-union state reps like Ken Duncan. That shows our power.
0: Have union members who were sceptical of this anti-racism stance uh, changed their opinions on it over time?
3: Look, it took a lot of debate and discussion. In schools, in our House of Delegates, but we won people over. If you're going to be a social justice union that fights for the rights of our students, we have to speak out against corruption and brutality.
0: Actions like Friday's shutdown, the 2012 strike and much of the union's program over the past six years would never have been possible without the election of the caucus of rank and file educators to union leadership in 2010 and its re-election in 2013. What's your sense of how strong the caucus is in schools right now and how well organised are your opponents?
3: Well, we just submitted our petitions for election this week because the elections are coming up at the end of the school year and no one is running against us. People support CORE, C-O-R-E. They like our message, they like having an active union that takes risks and has the membership take the lead.
0: Did you read the recent Chicago Tribune editorial on this action? They referred to the action as Tantrum Day and admitted that only a small minority of CTU members opposed the walkout and called for them to cross picket lines.
3: Well, media like the Chicago Tribune have never been our friend. They're frequently insulting our profession. It's ridiculous to tell people to scab when people are striking to actually get funding for our students. But I don't expect teachers to scab. They're brave, and they know they're fighting for what's right. They got into this profession to stand up for students, so I don't expect there will be many scabs. Interestingly, most people in the House of Delegates who voted no on strike actually wanted a longer strike. (laughs) People were getting up and saying this, and others who voted no still said that they would respect the strike. The vote was overwhelmingly in favour of the strike. 486? to 124
0: Uh, Talk about the significance of Governor Bruce Rauner
3: Well, Rauner has been really crushed at this point His approval rating from January showed that an 18% approval rating for education I think his career is pretty much over at this point He's still doing a lot of terrible things but everyone hates him. Rauner on the other hand hasn't been crushed yet. We're getting there We crushed some of his friends but we haven't stopped him. Now his budget cuts are hurting the entire state Not just now, but over the long term. The state has stopped paying for MAP grants. Well, MAP grants are how many our students are able to get to college at all. They're talking about closing Chicago State University. Huge numbers of our black students and black teachers went there. They're trying to close the schools that graduates the most African Americans in the whole state.
0: There are so many actions happening on Friday.
3: Yeah, it's hard to keep track of everything that's going on. In addition to all the marches and the rallies, many community groups are setting up their own actions. We keep hearing about new ones that we didn't plan. In my neighbourhood, Little Village, there's going to be a whole march going along from Little Village High School to my school, which is Sorcado, and we're going to the Cook County Prison. We're connecting how funding should be going to our schools, not prisons. Mm. Connecting the school to prison pipeline. Some politicians are purposefully defunding our schools, but they're funding the prisons. If they actually funded our schools, actually funded social services and funded restorative justice coordinators, we would actually have fewer of our students going to jails, and then the jails wouldn't need the funding.
4: Straight Arrows, Positive Women and Living Positive Victoria are pleased to announce the first Phoenix for Women. Phoenix for Women is a two-day workshop for women recently diagnosed with HIV or who are living with HIV and are now ready to connect in a safe and confidential environment. Across the two days there'll be information on breaking down personal barriers, strategies to help deal with stigma and tools for building social connections. Saturday to Sunday, April 16th and 17th, 9 till at Coventry House, South Bank. Food and childcare is provided and financial assistance for long distance travel can be arranged. If you feel this is something for you or someone you know, please contact Positive Women on Peer Support at positivewomen.org.au or call 03 9863 8747. A 3CR supporter. Youth Services is currently recruiting new members aged between 15 and 25 to join their Freezer Youth Events Committee. If you want to get into the music and events industry or design and deliver incredible geeks and parties and make amazing friendships while you're doing it, then this is the opportunity for you. Positions available include Artist Liaison Officer, Visual Director, Stage Manager, Productions Team, Promotions Crew, Chairperson, General Committee Volunteer and Business Development Officer. Spaces are filling up fast, so get in soon. To apply or to find out more, call 94261455 or hit us up at facebook.com slash Youth Services. A 3CR supporter.
1: Well, we've been over in Chicago. Let's come back to Australia. And up there in Sydney... Things haven't changed that much since 1968, and uh, on April the 11th uh, there was a big hoo-ha about taxpayers who are funding private school orchestra pits and swimming pools. A group of Sydney private schools, we're told, are planning to spend up to $200 in building new facilities. They receive 111 million in taxpayer funding last year, new data has received, revealed, allowing the institution to subsidise plans for tennis courts, flyover theatre towers and Olympic pools with underwater cameras. Now these schools include the King's School, Trinity Gamma, I think Trinity Grammar is perhaps the wealthiest school in Sydney, and Skegg's Redlands. And they have offset parents' investments through the public purse courtesy of an eleven million increase in combined state and federal funding since twenty twelve, according to my school data. Well of course that my school data only deals with direct grants, not the indirect taxation expenditures through exemptions. On Friday, Fairfax Media revealed that the oldest girls' school in, in Australia, St Catherine's in Waverley, I have vivid memories of the dogs um, having a very interesting uh protests there in the 60s, they had won a battle to build a $63 million auditorium complete with an orchestra pit, a water polo pool and a flyover tower for state-of-the-art theatre productions. The only thing they don't said to have are the hanging, well, the hanging gardens of Babylon. <laughs> now, the New South Wales Greens MP, David Shoebridge, described the funding figures as a travesty. And if parents are wondering why their child sweltered this summer in a public school classroom without air conditioning, then the answer is pretty obvious. It was to help some exclusive private school build its new recital hall, he said. So, uh, this, uh, th- this has been going on, of course, for a long time, and periodically the facts and the figures come out. Um, Skeggs Darlinghurst, uh, we're told, uh, got over 8 million Skeggs Redlands got 11 and a half million. St Andrews Cathedral School which is going to, which is a bit like Haylerberry that they're now building down in King Street um, it doesn't have a playground, it just has uh, something on the top of a very big high building but they got um, nearly 14 million St Catherine's got more than 14 million St Ignatius this is Riverview, got 22 million. So the Catholics are still still really raking it in more. Perhaps they're saying that St Ignatius is a very needy school. <laughs> um, but I think that's Riverview. I think that's Mr Abbott's old school, and a few others too. St Joseph's got 22 million. The Sydney Church of England Grammar School got. Nearly fourteen. Sydney Grammar School got nearly twelve. The International Grammar got thirteen and a half. And the King's School, oh, don't worry, the King's School are up there with Saint Ignatius. They got twenty-two million. And Scott's College, and I want to have a little talk about Scott's College, got 18 and a half, but the one that got the, one that got the most was definitely Trinity Grammar with 31 million and Monona with 11 and a half. Now, that's just taxpayer funding. Of course, they got loads and loads more out of fees and investments, but you don't know what the investments are because they wouldn't give them to Gillard, so they're not on uh, the MySchool website yet. Meanwhile, Scotts College, which uh, I've just told you got, uh, 18 and a half million out of the taxpayer direct grants, it's blown up. Uh, not with a bomb. These, these places are very interesting because sometimes the elites fall out and the headmaster has sacked, sacked the board. Here in Melbourne, the MLC board sacked the principal, didn't they? But there, the principal has sacked the board. Now who are on the board? This is even more interesting. John Irvin, who's the New South Wales Presbyterian Church General, General Assembly, Assembly Clerk. So in that sense, he's, he's a Presbyterian. Geoffrey Falls is the New South Wales Presbyterian Church General Manager. Alan Jones, broadcaster, is on the board. Gillian Hurd, the University of Tasmania academic, a chair, is the chairwoman and her two sons are college alumni. Rod Simpson, who's a lawyer at Simpson Partners, is the deputy chair. And Andrew Leithhead, who's the senior ANZ executive, has one son at the college and one son an alum, alum, alumni. Alumni, very important word, alumni. Oh, boy, it means. Philip Mitchell is the partner at Trez Cox and one son at the college and two sons who are alumni. Um, And they're saying... The principal is saying that the assumption by the former council that staff costs can be benchmarked against peer schools is problematic. Mm -hmm. So they were questioning his lurks and perks. So I I think that's going to be very interesting. It'll be interesting to see what uh, Alan Jones has to say. But I think that that is all that we have for this week thank you for uh, listening to us and if you want to hear more about us you can go to 3CR website and hear our podcasts or you can go to www.adogs.info but from Dale and myself bye for now
5: I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe Here ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In soul Lake City Joe, says I I'm standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge. Says Joe, but I ain't dead. Says Joe, but I dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe. Says I. is the